Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, the book of Ephesians is a book about living a life of faith and trust and hope. It's a book about how to put into action what it is that we believe. But it starts with Paul's explanation to us of what it is we have just been entered into, what it is that we have become a part of, what it is that we have become the recipients of, what it is that God has graced us with. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, he opens up by telling us of these great blessings that are ours. He tells us, for example, in verse 3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms. He tells us that we have been chosen by God. He tells us that we have become the objects of God's love to such an extent that he has plotted out our course for us, a course that is to bring glory and honor to his name and benefit to our lives. He tells us that we have been given the gift of redemption, that we have been forgiven of our sin, that we no longer have to carry around any sense of guilt or obligation unto God, that he accepts us freely in the beloved, we might say. And thus we have experienced the forgiveness of sin. We've experienced reconciliation with God. We've experienced the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit where new life has been pumped into us and created within us. And so Paul is explaining this, he's sharing this, he's making statements about this in the first 14 verses or so. He tells us that God is letting us in on what he is up to, that God has a plan for the ages, and we are a part of that plan, and not just a part of that plan, but he tells us what his plan is, perhaps not in every minute detail, but in the general spectrum spectrum of what it is God is doing. And we have a part in that plan of God that is unfolding before our very eyes and a plan in which we are participants and catalysts for the work of God to go forward. He tells us that we have been the recipients of the very spirit of God who has made us alive unto him and has sealed us. We are owned by him. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and we belong to another. 
He tells us that we are sealed. Not only are we owned by another, but we are one who is secured by him. We are secure in our faith. Someone has said, just as our good works cannot save us, our bad works cannot lose us. In Messiah, that we've come to embrace him, we are saved by grace. We're going to see this in Ephesians chapter 2. And just as our good works could not work to save us, our bad works cannot work to dislodge the saving grace of God that has been activated in our hearts and souls. Paul says we are sealed unto the day of redemption. Paul says to the Philippians, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He will not fail to bring you through to the other side. And one day we will stand before him and give him praise. And so Paul tells us all of these wonderful blessings are given to us that we might be to the praise of his glory. He says that three times in these verses. And with that in mind, in verses 15 through verse 23, Paul then prays for the believers at this congregation in Ephesus and the surrounding areas around that ancient city. And in his prayer, his prayer is that preeminently, verse 17, that as a result of these great blessings, we might know him. That's what God is about. Enabling us to know him as we ought to know him. And that is a lifelong and eternal process. It begins at the moment of salvation. It continues through our life here on earth. And it will continue forever into the eternities of eternities. We will always be getting to know the one who has loved us. That infinite, omnipotent one. We will always be searching him out. And learning more and more about him. And Paul goes on to say in these verses, and he spends particular attention in verse 19 about the power that is working in our midst. A power that he says is incomparable to anything else in this world. A power that the Lord is waiting to unleash in every one of our lives. Unleash that we might live in a way that honors him and that we might do the works that he would have us to do. When we get to chapter 2, Paul now reflects on two great miracles God has done in our lives. In verses 1 to 10, he has made us alive. He's taking, taken us out of death and he's made us alive unto God himself. The second supernatural work that he has done is found in verses 11 through the end of the chapter in that he has now done something new. He has made a new entity where Jews and Gentiles come together in the worship and praise of the living God of the universe. So Paul talks about the new life and this new creation, this new man that he has made where Jew and Gentile are gathered together and together are the objects of God's love and are the proponents of his work and plans in our world. 
So let's take a look at verses 1 to 10 in the few moments that we have before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want us to keep in mind the idea that we're going to be celebrating Messiah's death in our behalf. We're going to be reflecting as we partake of the wine that symbolizes his shed blood, the atoning work he's provided for us, and the unleavened bread which symbolizes his body. Keep that in mind as we think of these verses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, he says, you were dead in your trespasses or transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. These are verses that none of us like to read. And though it's God's word and we have to read it, we'll read it once and pass over it as quickly as we can. No one wants to hear we were at one time by very nature the objects of God's wrath. No one wants to hear that we were dead in trespasses and sins. What does it mean to be dead? Paul is not saying we were merely swooned or sick and needed to be resuscitated. He says that we were dead. And dead individuals are not capable of doing very much. When we think of dead individuals, two things come to my mind that describes the dead. One is they are impotent. They are powerless. They cannot do anything. I read the story of uh, one pastor who told the story that went while he was in school and he had what is normally referred to as a pastoral ministries class, he was taken to a funeral parlor because pastors are going to have to conduct funerals. And so he was taken to this parlor and he was led through the stages in which those that attend to the dead take care of them. And when he brought him downstairs and there were some of these bodies sitting on those tables, he took one of the sheets and just pulled it off of an individual. And he said to those that were in that class, preach to this man and see if he can respond. And of course, the message was being made very clear that this man is impotent and therefore cannot respond to the proclamation even of the word of God that is being sounded forth in his midst. The dead are powerless, but they're not only powerless, the dead decay and they waste away and they become, in the King James words, a stench to the nostrils. You remember when Yeshua rose Lazarus from the dead and told them to roll away the stone. Martha and Mary said, Yeshua, what are you doing? He's been in the tomb some three or four days. By this time, he is decaying, and he is rotting away. But by Yeshua's word, Lazarus come forth, he comes forth. What Paul is trying to bring to our attention is the great degree of need 
that we all have had. But none of us have known it. And most of us don't really perceive it even now after we've come to salvation. That's why Paul writes about it here. None of us really felt at any time we were dead, but the world is really a graveyard. And those that are walking around in it who don't know the Lord are moving about physically but spiritually, which is what Paul is focusing on, they are dead to the things of God. And that was our situation as well. Now, when I think of myself growing up, I just remember as a young man growing up or a young boy, I had loads of fun. I remember some of my old friends that I've reconnected with on Facebook and we reflect on, you remember when, you remember when, and we just had fun. And throughout my teenage years, I had fun. I had an enjoyable teenage experience. I know that may not be true for everyone, but there are moments as such. But what Paul is reminding us is, while we thought we were alive and well, we actually were dead in trespasses and sins. When Paul says trespasses and sins, the word trespass means to misstep. So I think what he may be conveying is, even when we attempted to do what is right, we misstepped and we would do what is wrong. And the word sins is a word for rebelliousness, and that seems to convey that there are many moments in our lives where we deliberately were doing what is wrong. So our whole life, whether we were deliberately doing what was wrong or intending to do what was right, we failed miserably because we were dead to the things of God. And we could not respond to him as we ought. And the reason we couldn't respond is because we weren't alive. And our hearts and minds and souls were not awakened to the reality of God's existence. And so how did that happen, that all of a sudden we find ourselves loving God, enjoying him, and even worshiping him this day? God did a work in us. And when he does a work in us, it is always connected by his word. For me, a friend of mine said, have you ever read about Yeshua, Jesus, for yourself? I said, I didn't. He gave me a Bible. I began to read the words of God, the words of Messiah. For some, it was a matter of what people conveyed to you about the truth of the Word of God. But the Word of God is living and active, and it separates the soul from the spirit, and it unfolds the very internal realities of our innermost being. It's the Word of God that made us alive, or the instrument that God used to make us alive unto the Lord himself. This is the way God always gives life. When he creates the world, he says, let there be. The word of God spoken brings into reality all of creation. When Yeshua calls forth Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. It's the word of God that makes us alive and then makes us recipients of the fullness of God's grace. But what Paul wants us to realize is the great need that we had. And the problem is that oftentimes as believers, we live like we're still dead in trespasses and sins rather than as ones who are alive unto God. 
And Paul tells us why that is so. Look at these verses. He tells us there are three things that we're always battling, always battling, that wants us to remind us of what we once were, dead to the things of God. The first thing he tells us of is that we follow the ways of the world. There's the pull of the values of the world around us. By the world, he means the lost that are in our world. By those that are not concerned with the things of God, the values that are held in our world. And none of us can escape the world. Remember, Yeshua said that while we are in the world, we are to be ones that are trusting in him because he has overcome the wicked one who is actively working in our world as well. But while we are in the world, we are not to be of the world. But it's hard work because we all work with others. We all interact with others who are not members or individuals who've come to know the Lord. And their values and their ideas impact upon us. We all watch movies and listen to music and read books, etc., that oftentimes promote things that are contrary to what God would have us do. And there is the world that is pulling at us to be like itself, what we once were. And thus we need to be cautious how we act, what we think about, what words we say, and what vocabulary we might use, just to name a few things that we need to think about. But it's not just the world that is a challenge to us. Look what else Paul says. He says, there is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. King James, I think, says the prince of the power of the air. I think the reason why Paul speaks of the evil one in this way is because like the air, it permeates and pervades everything and yet is invisible to us. And while the evil one is not omnipresent, he has enough demon, dem, demonic hordes to enable his work to go forth. And so not only do we battle the world and its values and its ways, but we have one who goes about as a roaring lion who seeks to devour whomsoever he might. And so there's the world. There's the evil one in his cohorts, and therefore we need to be vigilant, and we need to be aware of what's happening in the spiritual realms of things. But he also tells us there is our own sinful nature in verse 3. He talks about the King James uses the word flesh, but it doesn't mean the physical body. He means that thing, that principle that is active in all of us, that leads us to disobey the ways of God. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. There's an ongoing battle with our own inner nature that is inclined to disobey God. So Paul says in these opening verses, we are dead because of our transgressions and our sins. We, have been, we were dead to the things of God, separated from God. Death in the scripture means to be separated, to be uh, alienated from. The separation of the soul from the body is physical death. The separation of the spirit from God is spiritual death. That is what our reality was. 
And it was reinforced by the world, by the evil one, and by the sinful nature that we all struggle with. Then when we turn to verse 4, in the Greek it says, But God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Messiah. In verse 4, my translation says, but because of his great love for us. But the Greek, it's more emphatic. But God, because of his great love for us. And that is always the uh, antidote for the challenges we face. It is God who steps in, intervenes, and does a work in our behalf. And look what he tells us. Number one, because of his love for us in verse 4. The motivating factor of God's work of redemption is the love of God. And that's why John says, for God is love. That's why John writes, for God so loved the world. That's why in the Hebrew scriptures over and over again, we read of the chesed, the loving kindness of God. Because of God's love for us, his concern for us, he would not leave us in that state But God intervenes. And look what he does. And what's interesting about what he does, it is the same track that Yeshua takes. It's the same steps that Messiah takes are the same steps he brings us through. Notice what he says. First of all, he points out Messiah has died for us. He doesn't mention his death particularly right here, but he will. First of all, he has died. And just as we have been dead in trespasses and sins, while Messiah was not dead in trespasses and sins, he freely gave his life for us in our place. Just as we were dead, so Messiah died for us. But look what he says. He then made us alive with Messiah. And look then in verse uh, verse 6. And then he raised us up with Messiah. What he's telling us is that God infused life into us. And then once he infused life into us, he raised us up. Like Messiah, who is dead, he infused life into Messiah, and he was made alive, and he got up, and he walked out of the tomb. What Paul is saying is, he's telling us God has infused us with life. He's made us alive. We need to get up out from our tombs. And we need to live in the world as living beings unto God. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in the latter section of the book of Ephesians. What does a life lived unto God look like? And you'll see how Paul speaks of relationships. How do we relate to one another? How do parents relate to their children? How do children relate to their parents? How do workers relate to their bosses? How do bosses relate to their workers? How do individuals in the body of Messiah relate to one another? This is what Paul is going to say is the manifestation of the life of God in our midst. It's how we relate to one another. And it gets back to the very fundamentals of the faith. To love God. How do we relate to him? 
And do we love one another? How we relate to others. And so Paul is telling us the same road that Yeshua took is the same road we are taken on. We are dead. He makes us alive. He raises us up. And then look at the last section he says. And he seats us in the heavenly places in Messiah. We are actually seated with Messiah. By the way, there are a lot of things to talk about here, but about six times in these 11 verses, he speaks about being in Messiah. In this one verse, three times he tells us, in Messiah. It's because of Messiah that all these things are possible. It's because of what Yeshua has done and is doing presently and what he has done in the past that these things are true for us. Notice it's all in the past tense. He's already raised us up. He's already made us alive. He's already seated us in the heavenly places. Three times he mentions our relationship to the heavenly places in these first opening verses. We are already there. So what is the problem? Only two things can keep us from experiencing the dynamic of the life of God in our hearts. And reflected in our actions. Either we're ignorant of it and we don't know it. And so we're not aware of it. Like Apollos who wasn't aware of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Until Priscilla and Aquila taught him. When he was at uh, Ephesus. Or it's because of our refusal to yield to our Lord. To allow him to have his way with us. This is why Paul says no longer be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the work of Messiah in our hearts. That requires a yieldedness to our Lord to experience the realities that are already ours. And so why has God done all of this? Take a look at this. This is so fantastic as I think about this. Look at verse 7. He's done all of this. And by the way, let me just, well, I'll say this in conclusion, but He's already done all of this. And why? Look at verse 8. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, his kindness in Messiah Yeshua. Why has he done all this? He says to show forth. The word here means to put on display so that everyone could see the work of God. For how long? Look what Paul says. For the, he says in verse 8, uh, verse 7, in the coming ages, there's a long time to come. There are coming ages. How long is an age? What constitutes an age? Some have said the time from the creation to Noah was an age because of the destruction of the world. Some have said that from Noah to the present is an age. Some have said the millennial kingdom, a thousand years, is an age. But Paul says that God wants to put us on display for ages and ages and ages to come. That's why he's done what he has done in your life, in mine. We oftentimes hear he has done this so that our lives might be better. They might. 
He's done this so that we might find meaning and significance in our lives. We might. But that's not why God has done this. He's done this that his glory might be shown. Not only now, but in the variety of ages that are yet to come. The work going on in you now is only for a short time, but will have ramifications for all of the ages upon the ages upon the ages, for all of the eternities yet to come. And what's neat is God wants to display you. When you go into a museum and you see this great artwork, they're on display for us. Why? Because they're great pieces of art. When you go into museums and you see these old pottery shards or these old relics because they are to be on display because they're so valuable and precious. You are valuable and precious to God. He has exerted his life in you to make you alive to him that you might know him better and better so that in the coming ages you would be a display piece for the love and glory and power and grandeur of the living God. And it is that which we are to be even now with all of our limitations and all of our foibles. Is that not amazing? Can I get an amen? Just, just one. I just want one, you know? I mean, this is just, look what he says as he brings this passage section to a close. We are God's workmanship. The word there is the word from which we get the word poem from. Did you ever try to craft a poem? I know there are some that can just knock them out, like our friend Bobby. Dylan, you know, he just sits down with a napkin and they just flow, you know, and then we, we reflect on the depth of what he had to say. And in a recent article I read, he said he never meant to say anything. It was all gibberish and he hardly even says the words. I hope he really didn't say that. But the point is, do you ever try to really craft a poem? It's a lot of work. You got to have a decent vocabulary. You got to know how things come together. Takes time, patience, talent, and skill. God is crafting you. He's writing out a script for you. In fact, look what he says. God's workmanship, that's what you, we are, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know God has a work for you to do? That's what Paul says. It's already scripted out in advance. He's already shaped you by the experiences of your life, both before and now, before you knew the Lord, and even now. All of that is part of God's workmanship to prepare you for the works that he has already prepared for you to do. We only wake up to it, but God said, that's what I had meant all along. And that's because of God's great love for us. 
Now, lastly, there are three things that work toward your understanding, toward my understanding of how these things get fleshed out in our lives. I mentioned just three things. Number one is the Word of God. It's always God's Word that is the catalyst for anything and everything God does. We must always come back to the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved unto God. It is the Word of God that we need to have saturating our hearts, our souls, and our minds, if we're going to do the works that God has prepared for us to do. You will not know them unless you're in God's word. Second thing is prayer. Because prayer is what unleashes the spirit of God to illuminate our minds, to understand the word, and to be impacted by its significance. And the third thing is suffering. God always brings his servants through suffering if they're going to be servants at all. Think of the suffering that Joseph went through. 17 years old when he was put into slavery to the Ishmaelites, sold into slavery to Pharaoh, spent some number of years, two years in prison before he is released and set as the right hand to Pharaoh. Consider David. David was anointed king not once, not twice, but three times before he becomes king of Israel. And suffer, he had to run from the most powerful man at that time for decades before he could rise to the throne. And in his running, What were his companions like? Well, they were the outcasts of the kingdom. They were the rough, tough guys that would rebel and resist any guidance from another. That's who David had to hang out with for years before he could become the king of Israel. Consider the life of Yeshua himself. As he becomes a human being, a man, and he suffered and died for our sin. Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Talk about suffering. Paul in 1 Corinthians outlines the degree to which he had suffered in order for him to be the kind of man God would use him as he did use him. How many of you have ever suffered a shipwreck and left to hang on to some wood for your life? Paul experienced it, I think he said, three times. The first time would have been enough for me to say, I'm not going back out on the high seas. But Paul got shipwrecked three times. How many of us have ever been beaten and left for dead? Paul tells us five times he was beaten with rods. We know at least one time he was stoned and left for dead. How many of us have been in the heart and soul of riots? Paul was. How many of us have been sent to prison and had to be handcuffed or chained to a guard and 
be abused as he was and limited as he was. Yet Paul says that these were just easy moments of endurance, he says. The light affliction, he called it. Light, oh my goodness. If we want to experience the life of God as Paul is talking about here, if we want to really experience that incomparable power that raised Messiah from the dead that is at work in us now, Paul says in chapter 1, if we want to experience what it means, the ramifications of being seated in the heavenlies, we must be a people of the word. We must be a people of prayer. And we must be a people who unflinchingly face our sufferings and count it all joy because of the results and ramifications that will come of it. That's what James says. Consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because it will work character in us which will unleash the very power of God. Now, before, if I had said, how many want to sign up? (laughs) You know, we would have said, hey, count me in. But when we realize what it necessitates, well, now, how many of us want to sign up? But if we don't sign up, we can't expect the power of Messiah to make much of a difference in our own lives, let alone the lives of others that we might intersect with and interact with. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the gift of life that you have provided for us. We thank you, Lord, that we are saved by grace, and this not of ourselves. It is the gift of God by which you, O Lord, have taken us who are dead in trespasses and sins. You have taken us who struggle in the world and with our sin nature and the evil one combined. But yet despite all of that, you have taken us and you have breathed into us by your spirit new life. Like the breathing of the spirit of God on the bones in the valley that Ezekiel saw and they came to life. So you breathed upon us. And you made us living beings. But not just alive. But you have seated us with Messiah in the heavenly places. You have conveyed the very resurrection power of Messiah into our very innermost being. Help us, Father, to so yield ourselves to you. That that life giving presence of the living God would exude from us to one another and to the world around us. Father, help us to be a people of the word, reading it regularly, meditating and reflecting on it, getting with those who have gifts of teaching and have backgrounds and skill in handling the word of God, to better understand it. Help us, Father, to devote ourselves to prayer. Pray unceasingly, Paul instructs us. Help us to pray as we ought. 
And then help us, Father, to realize the sufferings that we go through are for our goodness and to mold us and to make us more like the people of God you would have us to be. It is the road that all of your wonderful servants that we read about in Scripture and outside of Scripture in the history of your workings have all gone through. And so, Father, we pray that you might do what is needed, that we might become what you would have us to be. And now as we think of the observance of these elements that represent the broken body of our Messiah, his shed blood in our behalf, we pray, Father, that we might reflect deeply on our lives even now. And if we've never known that life, I pray, Father, that we might even ask you this moment, come into my heart, and save me. Take me from my deadness and trespasses and sins and make me alive unto you, O Lord. And if we've experienced the grace of God in salvation, Father, we would pray that we would experience your grace in living a life that reflects the very presence and power of God in our midst. And so, Father, we would, even in these moments, confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We glorify you, O Lord, for who you are. We praise you for what your Son has done. And we thank you for the work of your Spirit in our heart and in our lives. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.